0: Coming this evening uh, then to the third of our studies in the Minor Prophets and coming to consider uh, this book of Amos, a book that's perhaps uh, surprised me for its absolute magnificence uh, and wonder and and beauty and hopefully as we consider it briefly this evening as something of that the riches of this book will will come to you uh, with fresh insight and delight. Perhaps you remember Paddy from the south of Ireland preaching in the north. He preached in the cities of Londonderry, Newry, Lisburn and Belfast a few years ago. He spoke out against the moral evils of our times. He mentioned abortion, people trafficking and race crimes. He spoke out on behalf of the defenceless of our society but was told by local MPs to be quiet and to get back down south. He was only a farmer, he had no university education, he had no ordination by any church. But the phenomenon of this farmer from the south preaching in the north and denouncing the evils of our times gripped the attention of our province and of our press. And this is the very situation in this prophecy of Amos. And there's three striking things that grip us this is not my three points, right at the outset uh, of this book, the messenger, the moment, and the message. The messenger, Amos, was from Judah in the south of, of Canaan, the southern kingdom. He's described in verse 1 of chapter 1 as coming from the town of Tekoa, a town which was 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So he was a southerner, and he is sent to the northern kingdom, of Israel to denounce it. He was a farmer. And a highly successful farmer. The word in chapter 1 and, and verse 1 for, for sheep farmer you can see or shepherds. Uh, you see that, that the margin there sheep breeders only occurs twice in the Old Testament. Here and in first, uh, Second Kings chapter 3 and verse 4. There in Second Kings three, verse four, it's used of the king of Moab who was under tribute to pay Solomon every year. He's described by the same word in one one a sheep breeder. That king of Moab in Second Kings three was tasked with paying tribute to Solomon of 100,000 lambs per year. And if Amos was operating, he might not have been, but if Amos was operating as a special ward on the same scale, the lambs selling in St. Market are going for 120 pounds and 50 pence at the present time. You add two zeros onto 100,000 That was his annual income. In chapter 7, verse 14, he has diversity within his farming. He's also a herdsman. He's a keeper, a a producer, a, a, a developer of sycamore fig trees. Here is a man who's influential, who's wealthy, a farmer from the south. God sends him to the north. He didn't go to any of the rabbinic schools which Elijah had set up. Chapter 7 verse 14 he says, I was no prophet or the son of a prophet. But God sends this southern farmer around 760 BC to the north. And he startled them by being this uneducated messenger from the south. But a second striking thing about this prophecy is the moment that he came, chapter 1 and verse 1, it mentions the earthquake. This earthquake was was massive. It was high on the Richter scale. Eh, The most powerful earthquake in history happened in 1960 in Chile, southern Chile, reaching 9.5 on the Richter scale. Two million people were made homeless by that earthquake. Something massive happened in 1960, and something massive happened in 760 BCE. So big was this earthquake that archaeologists have been able to find evidence of it and to date it to 760 BCE in Samaria. And so massive was this earthquake that 200 years later, the prophet Zechariah mentions this earthquake in chapter 14 and verse 5 of his prophecy. He says, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. The book of Amos, the prophet came to the northern kingdom two years after the earthquake. The people were still living on edge, still deeply traumatized, still rebuilding their houses and their businesses from that earthquake. The messenger is startling. The moment is startling and the message is startling. Chapters 1 and 2 of Amos are... Are fantastic they're they're incredible he starts off by denouncing the other nations chapters one and two and eight nations are are mentioned in these chapters Uh, he crisscrosses first of all the land of Canaan he starts with Damascus in the northeast then he goes down to Gaza in the southwest and then he starts in, in Tyre in the northwest and then he goes to Edom in the southeast Then he follows that up with Ammon, Moab and Judah in the Middle Eastern side of Israel. All enemies of the Northern Kingdom, all rivals. You can imagine the scene in the city of Samaria, in the the city square there. This farmer from from the south comes with his southern bro. Can you imagine it? And he gets going there and, and the people are dismissive and they're ridiculing, oh another southern here, southerner are here, come in and tell us how to live. But when they begin to hear his message, oh this is good, this is good, you know, he's talking about our, our enemies here and the demise of our enemies, Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and, and Gaza, yes, Gaza and, and Edom, Ammon and Moab and Judah and they're rubbing their hands. This sense of self-congratulation is rippling through the crowd and they're feeling good about themselves and and their pride is rising. Then he comes to the the verses we read in chapter 2 and and verse 6. Israel also, the northern kingdom, will tumble. God's judgment will arrive at your doorstep. For your sins. For your transgression. So what a moment this is. What what a time this is. What a startling, gripping prophecy Amos is. The messenger is startling. The moment is startling. The message that he brings to the people is gripping and startling. As he moves in uh, to this wonderful part of God's word. And as we just freeze a moment and reflect on this. What a God we serve. What a God we worship. What a God we bow down before this evening. A God over all the nations of the earth. To whom all the nations of the earth are accountable. Gaza, Yemen, Ukraine, Russia, the UK. Our own province. So, we're pulling just one theme out of the book of Amos, and it's this theme of riches. It's one of the dominant themes in this book. There were, there were many other themes and ideas that run through this, but, but we want to focus uh, this evening uh, on this one theme of riches from uh, the book of Amos. Thinking then of the riches uh, of the people uh, in this time. And it was a wealthy time, uh, a time of great pros- prosperity within the nation of Israel. And there are various reasons for the prosperity that I'll detail for you just in a moment. One is that there was peace between the northern and southern tribes, uh, countries of Israel and of Judah. Sometimes they were at war, but at this time they were at peace. And that peace allowed for trade between those two nations, allowed for their harvest uh, to be reaped in peace, and allowed for local businesses to prosper. But alongside of that peace between the two nations, there was the long reigns of two kings. Uzziah reigning for around 50 years and Jehoshaphat reigning in Israel for around 40 years. So so these long reigns of these two kings brought stability to both of these nations and this allowed prosperity to progress. Besides this, a key rival to Israel in the north was the nation of Syria. It had been conquered by Assyria in 802 BC and was no longer a problem to the northern kingdom. Assyria itself had domestic troubles. It wasn't able to promote its expansion into other nations, which it was prone to do. And it was limited and focused on its home problems. And so all of this, Allowed the northern kingdom in the time of Amos to prosper. For wealth to to flow in. Chapter 6 verse 13 uh, mentions the expansion uh, of the northern kingdom. You brag about your conquest of Lodibar. We read the verses. You boast, didn't we take Carnaim by our own strength? Lodibar and Carnaim were situated right out on the the eastern uh, borders of of Israel. On the other side of the, the Jordan River. This was the the full territory which Israel had under Solomon. It's restored now in this time of prosperity and advance. They gained control of important trade routes and money was flowing in from the taxes on the roads and the taxes on goods which were going down those trade routes. It was a time of prosperity and expansion. And the evidence of this is detailed by the prophet Amos. He's walking around with his eyes open. He's observant. He sees what's going on in his time and his society. And he lists for us throughout this prophecy three evidences of their wealth. One was big houses. Chapter 3 verse 15. The beautiful homes of the wealthy. Their winter mansions and their summer houses too. All their palaces filled with ivory and the great houses, says the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 11, you build beautiful stone houses. Large, numerous, beautiful houses were evidence of their prosperity. A second evidence was cultivated gardens. In chapter 5, verse 11, you have planted pleasant vineyards. The word pleasant means coveted, valuable, beautiful, desirable These were vineyards which were tended and trained and and developed. These beautiful, pleasant vineyards was another evidence of their wealth. They employed gardeners and horticulturists to advance their gardens and their fruits. And the third evidence was their rich diet in chapter 6, verses 4 to 7, which we read together. And in this chapter, we are given insight into the wealth of the people, at meal times. Verse 4, you sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and of choice calves fattened in the stall. The possession of ivory and of lambs on the dinner table was evidence. They were rare commodities in this time. But these people in Samaria and in the northern kingdom had them and used them. Verse 5, entertainment accompanied their meals with harpists playing in the background. Verse 6 of chapter 6, the utensils used at the meal again express their wealth and their luxury. They anoint themselves, verse 6 says, with the finest oils. So here is Amos in the prophecy. And he's describing the wealth of this nation. In this time of peace in this time when other nations are either conquered or or, or otherwise engaged in their attention, the people prosper. Their houses and their meals and their gardens are evidencing their prosperity. The question we're asking is, how do we interpret wealth in his time In our time, and Amos is so helpful to us in understanding wealth. Are we to understand wealth as a sign of God's blessing, that he is pleased with us, that we are in a good relationship with God? This is a mindset that they seem to have and that we perhaps could think of in times of adversity, in times of of poverty. Perhaps we look at our lives and study our lives and and wonder about our lives. But in times of wealth, we're more prone to think, well, God is pleased with me. Or else he would not give me such luxury and enjoyment. The book of Amos is so useful to us to correct that wrong understanding. That here we're a people exuding wealth and extravagance and prosperity but a people who were living unrighteous and godless lives. And so we come to think of that in our second point, the ruthlessness of Israel. They were a religious people. They had an outward conformity to the rules and ways and ceremonies and religious practices of their time. In a few passages, we read of their religious commitment. Verse 4 and 5 of chapter 4, we're told of their offerings, thank offerings, daily offerings, voluntary offerings. They were even paying their tithes from their wealth into the church, into the temple buildings. A second passage, chapter 5, verse 21 to 24, describes how they kept the festivals Like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. They offered the burnt and the peace and the meal sacrifices. And they sung praise. And all of these things were commanded by God. And outwardly going to the festivals, paying their tithes, singing their songs, offering their sacrifices. This people were religious. Following many of the commands and ordinances of God. So alongside of their their riches, they had this outward religion. But the message of Amos is that in their heart and practice and other life, they were corrupt and fallen and godless. He focuses in his prophecy on their oppression of the poor. That to sustain their wealth and to gain more wealth, they were oppressing the vulnerable and the poor in society. And in four passages within his prophecy, he he brings this out for us. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, he says, you're selling the poor. It may refer to human trafficking or it may refer to giving false witness in court for money. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we read, you oppress the poor, you crush the needy. And the reference here is to powerful women in Samaria. He calls them the cows of Bashan. Bashan was a a fertile area and the cows there were were, were, were heavy, they they were advanced, they they were well-bred, and here he uses uh, that sign of wealth uh, as a symbol of these powerful, wealthy women within Samaria who were oppressing the poor, using their position and influence to oppress the needy. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, he talks about bribes in courts, heavy taxes on the people, unfair rents treating the righteous like dirt. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, you deprive the poor of justice. Then in chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, in the last passage, we read, you trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. And Then that section, chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, the prophet emphasizes that The way that they're getting their wealth is unjust. He mentions the heavy shekel, and he mentions the small ephah, and these were instruments that were used in buying and in selling. In buying goods, they had a heavy shekel on the scales. In selling goods, they had a low ephah, which was a measure of selling corn, for example. So the ephah was smaller than it should have been. The shekel was heavier than it should have been. And all of this was lining the pockets of the rich and taking unjustly from the poor. So here were people who had an abundance of wealth. But was that abundance of wealth a sign of God's favor, his delight in them, his pleasure with them? Here were a people who were outwardly religious. They weren't atheists. They, they weren't avoiding church. They were involved in the festivals and in the sacrifices. Paying their tithes and singing their songs. But they were also a people who were misusing their wealth. And gaining wealth in an unjust and in an unrighteous way. And God through the prophet Amos sends this the southerner up into the streets and towns and cities of the northern kingdom to denounce them, to call them and us to repentance. One of the interesting things about Amos is that he was a a, a dresser and seller of sycamore figs, 714 says. Sycamore figs was the food of the poor he knew the poor he met the poor he spoke to the poor no doubt he too was tempted with overcharging the poor and he comes with this from this position of knowledge and and understanding to, to the wealthy who are misusing their position and gaining their wealth and sustaining it in an unjust and unrighteous way. And he makes two points uh, uh, about their practice. In chapter 7, verse 7 to 9, he uses this image of a plumb line being held against a wall. And still today, the plumb line is used uh, to, to ensure that the wall is straight. And sometimes we use it to, to see how far uh, the wall has shifted uh, from its upright position. The plumb line has being held against the wealthy. And the powerful in the land of Israel. And they're coming up short. They're failing to fulfill those laws of God. Which require love and care and interest in the poor. And he says in chapter 6 verse 12 which we read. Not only is their practice against the law of God. They're falling short of that plumb line. It's also against common decency and sense. Chapter 6, verse 12. Do horses run on rocks, he asks? Of course they don't. Does one plough there with oxen? Of course you don't. That's common sense. But you have turned justice into poison, he asserts. Last week the press had headlines about oil and gas companies making billions of pounds, while poor people struggle to fill their oil tank to pay their bills? Is this the wealthy oppressing the poor? Do we care for the poor? Do we avoid buying goods from sweatshops made in India? Do we support our local food bank in arts? Do we give to charity? True religion," James says, is to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. A care for the poor. It's an evidence of our Christianity. Our riches are not to drive us away from the poor, but towards the poor. Our riches are not to be sustained on the back of the poor but used to relieve their poverty. In the Gospel of Luke, the Lord Jesus is described again and again as reaching out to the poor, to the widows, to the children. Is our outward religion enough for us? Are we content with conforming to what is outwardly expected of a professing Christian? Or are we interested also and primarily in the religion of our hearts? As we come to communion, we're to reflect on that and to address that. So here are the riches of this northern people in the time of Amos, abundantly wealthy. Here's the ruthlessness Of this people in that northern kingdom oppressing the poor, sustaining their wealth and making their wealth, making more wealth, driven on by this lifestyle that they've adopted, but at the expense of the poor. But even for them, there is the offer of mercy and forgiveness and salvation in our third point, the restoration of this northern kingdom. And the the prophet here addresses this in, in some amazing and gripping ways. In chapters 1 to 3, he uses a metaphor throughout this denouncement of the nations and of the northern kingdom. He uses the metaphor of a lion roaring. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. Chapter 3, verse 8, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? And this is a common title of the book of Amos. The Roaring Lion Blanchard and Salvaggio title the the Book of Amos by the Lion Roaring. And the metaphor is God speaking through the prophet Amos. He's he's warning the people. The roaring lion in the time of Amos would, would, would cause all kinds of reaction from those who heard it. They would grab their children. They would come into their houses. There would be a mighty gripping response by the people and Amos is saying this is what's happening here. God the judge is roaring. He's calling to you. He's warning you and there needs to be a response to you or judgment will come to you. Chapters 4 and 5 he has this moving section of repeating the phrase yet you have not returned to the Lord. See chapter 4 verses 6 to to 13. Five times over. We read this phrase. Chapter 4 verse 6. Yet you did not return to me. Different judgments come on the nation. But again and again. There is this hardness of heart. They are wealthy. They are successful. They are powerful. They are living in luxury. Why would they change this? Why would they alter their lifestyle? But even this people who have been so unrepentant. Chapter 5, four times over, calls on them to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord despite their obstinacy, despite their refusal to turn and to change. There is this offer of mercy to them. Seek the Lord. And forgiveness and grace will come to you. One of the striking things, one of the wonderful things, one of the refreshing things about the prophecy of Amos is that every now and again, out of the blue, he just praises God. He just comes to to this part where he mentions the name of God and he he goes off on this adoration of God. Uh, Look at them, uh, just just briefly. Chapter 4, verse 13. He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man... What is his thought? Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth? The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Chapter 5, verse 8. He who made the Pleiades in Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the earth and pours them out on the surface of the earth? The Lord is his name. And chapter 9, and verse 6 who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth and calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. These doxologies come in the presence of dark pronouncements of judgment. And it's as if the prophet is, is so in love with God and so in adoration of God that he cannot hold himself in. And he also wants this people to see How glorious and wonderful the living and true God is. Far greater than their power. Far more valuable and glorious than their wealth. Our God of majesty to be worshipped and loved. The last three chapters, the climax of the the prophecy of Amos are, are absolutely fascinating. There's four visions uh, in those uh, last chapters, uh, and then we come to this uh, repeated phrase, uh, which ends uh, the prophecy for us. In chapter 8 and, and verse number 8, Shall not the land tremble, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And then in chapter 9, verse 5, the same phrase is used, And all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. And the striking thing for us by this opening and finishing a clause chapter 8 verse 8 and 9 verse 5 is that in between this God says 12 times I will. And every time it's a promise of judgment. This wealthy oppressing people God will bring down He's not going to stand back and allow the poor to be oppressed. He's going to judge them. Just like the Nile every year overflows its banks. All the farmers wait for it. and Every year it happens. So as certain as the Nile overflows its banks and recedes again. So as certain will God's judgment come on the northern kingdom. Twelve times I will. we say, well, they deserve it. We deserve it. But the wonderful thing and appeal for their repentance and our repentance is this. That that's not how the prophecy ends. For in the verses we read, verses 11 to 15, eight times, God says, I will. Yes, he promises judgment on the nation. But the prophecy ends with the promise of grace and restoration and rebuilding. A promise that goes far beyond the return from exile. And in Acts chapter 15, James at that great council in Jerusalem appeals to this prophecy, verse number 11. "In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, repair its breaches, and all the nations who are called by my name will come. A promise far beyond the restoration of Israel to the promised land, going beyond the nations of the earth, coming into the church of Christ. Members of his glorious kingdom. You're sitting there and you're saying, How? How can this happen? How can a people so godless, so oppressive, so filled with their own sense of wealth and power and entitlements be restored by this God of holiness and judgment? How can he give such a promise? The answer is in chapter 8, verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That verse is one of those I wills of judgment. But it goes far beyond the exile of Of the people of Israel in 722 BC. This ultimate fulfillment of God's judgment. Is at the cross. When at midday. The sun went down at noon. And darkness. The earth was darkened. In broad daylight. God's grace is offered to them. God's grace is offered to us because of his Son going down into the darkness of forsakenness and judgment for all his people, taking on himself our sins and our iniquities and our transgressions. That as we come before him with our broken lives and the broken lives of others, repentance and faith in the crucified. Son of God and Saviour. All of our sins. Will be forgiven. The riches. The ruthlessness. The restoration. Of the northern kingdom. So let us. As we live our lives. Have a care for the poor. Let us have an interest in them. He uses a a mighty metaphor. In chapter 5 verse 21. 24 to, to be like a stream that never goes dry that our compassion and mercy for the poor whether we're poor or whether we're rich will never dry up I leave you with one insight into Amos in chapter 7 verse 2 and 4 just an incredible Insight into this man who brought this message from the south up into the north. A message of judgment. He gave it. He pronounced it. He gave it all. He stood there in the midst of opposition. He was told to go home. We didn't mention that. But the high priest told him to head home and go away back to your own country. We don't want you here with this message of doom. How did he, think? How did he feel about this? How did he think about it? Was he relishing it? Oh, those northerners, you know, they're going to get what what they deserve. Look at this man in chapter 7 and verse 2. I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Matthew Henry comments on this. He that foretold the judgment in his preaching to the people, yet deprecated it in his prayers for them. Though he denounced, he did not desire the woeful day. What an example for us. And God heard his prayer.